Welcome back to the AWER audio experience. What are we talking about today, Reed? Today we have a two-part series on self-love. But who are we talking about it with, Sean? Dr. Michael Klein. Dr. Michael Klein is primarily a clinical psychologist. He taught at the California Institute of Integral Studies for over 20 years, helping people learn the art of self-compassion. And he has a master's in Indian philosophy and comparative psychology. Michael's lifelong mission has so much alignment with the AWER audio experience that we just had to bring him on. So starting with Michael, telling us about his lifelong mission. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. It is a pleasure. (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to add about your resume that stands out to you that I missed? I've really just had this lifelong, how do I bring together just the profound wisdom of the Dharma and really of all the Eastern traditions with what's happening in West. So that's, I I could keep going, but that's the very short version. Yeah, I think we're super interested about that blend between Eastern and Western world because one of our big missions is to help bring meditation to more people and specifically people in our age group. So there is this blend of, you know, Eastern meditation meets Western society meets our generation. So (laughs) we have a lot of questions to pick your brain. Great. I'm super excited. Give us a little background to your experience meditating. We understand that you had kind of a psychedelic introduction to that whole world. That's super interesting. And and that spans, you know, decades far. So So the starting point, each time I teach my class, I, I try to really stop and listen and feel and have it come out fresh each time. And at some point, this part of the story, I just started sharing publicly so I, I went away to college and I was this depressed stoner kid that I was going to go to business and make a lot of money. And it was Halloween night, my freshman year of college. And someone gave me an ounce of mushrooms, which I later found out were they had taken LSD and sprayed it on mushrooms bought at Safeway. So I had the equivalent of four hits of acid. Wow. Wow. And the wow captures it. <laughs> like, oh, wow. I, I, I felt like I lived more in that one night than my entire 18 years. <laughs> and that I, that I went around, like you, Sean got it, and I was just like, wow. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, it was just like this entire new universe. I was with a group of people and everyone seemed like they were having that experience or was, but came down and they sort of all went back to their lives. And I went back to being a student and working hard and, but like something shifted in me and I can still remember it was like four o'clock in the morning in my freshman dorm and looking at the fire and I was sort of starting to reconstitute and I was like, I have no idea what the fuck just happened. (laughs) What does anything mean anymore? (laughs) But I will spend the rest of my life finding out. You know, it really, that has kind of been the guiding principle of orienting to how do I make sense of this experience and integrate it with a full, alive, meaningful, rich life in the West. That was 40 years ago. And it really is just in the last couple of years, the neuroscience is catching up, but on an experiential level, I'm catching up that it's really the turning off the default mode network. As the default mode network goes off, 
that experience of wow and aliveness and radiance and vividness goes up. And so I can now, you know, on my morning walk and I do a, a 30 minute walking meditation every day, there's that same wow and vividness. And even though I take the same walk every single day, I'm just in awe of how incredibly beautiful it is in my little suburban neighborhood in San Rafael. So you feel like that experience really just opened the door to being able to tap into that that space? That experience opened the door, but honestly, and this was a long, long time ago, I had absolutely no idea. I'd never heard of meditation. Literally never heard of it. Hmm. Was just talking obsessively. I think I was making all my friends a little nuts. <laughs> and it was like three months later that a friend dropped the book, Be Here Now, in my lap. And I remember reading about Ram Das and Neem Karoli Baba. And it was, you know, they talked about him eating the equivalent of 20 hits of LSD. Do you and, come back from that? <laughs> well, and he said it didn't even affect him. Right. And the way Ram Das talked about it is that he was just in that state all the time. And that was the point hmm. where I read that and I was like, okay. And the next day I started looking into taking meditation classes. And I started meditating shortly after that. And I've had a pretty consistent daily practice since then. So that was in college. You had that experience. And then you picked up meditating daily. Yeah. That was my freshman year of college. And I started out in a Hindu tantric tradition. And over the years, I've participated in Sufi traditions, the Advaita Vedana traditions, studying Tai Chi, Got a group of friends and we built a sensory isolation tank in the nice. basement of our house in college. I mean, so I did Native American rituals. So anyhow, I, you know, was starved and trying everything. And so many, many different forms of meditation. That actually sets up my first question really nicely is there's so many people ask me. So I've probably been meditating every day for three to four years. People ask me, what kind of meditation do you do? And I know the techniques that I do, whether that's like labeling, body scanning, visualization, breath work, all those. But those seem more like techniques than actual types of meditation, right? So like, what's the lay of the land look like in the meditation world? So a way that I think about it, I both think about the different traditions. So there are the skills of meditation in all of the world religions. And... I happen to think that the Hindu tradition, the Sufi tradition, and the Buddhist tradition, they've put the most energy into it and have the richest depth and specificity. I've practiced in all of them quite a bit. Probably for about the last 15 years, I started calling myself a Buddhist. That my own experience is that the, the, the way the Buddha articulates it resonates most with me. Hmm. So there's one way to look at the specificity, and then within that, there's the Theravana and Mahayana and Tibetan traditions. There's a different way of categorizing it, which is a large group of meditations train the mind to be still. In the West, the word is sometimes concentration, that you're training the attentional system because the mind likes to wander away. Mm -hmm. Anyone that meditates has that a humbling experience. Yeah. <laughs> and one teacher, this is many years ago, that said, if we had as much control over 
our bodies as we do over our minds. We couldn't make it across the street without getting hit by a car, <laughs> right? And, and so it's, as I've done many long retreats, it's humbling how little control you have until you train the mind. So there's a huge set in any of the traditions that's just, well, can I get the mind to stay? I think of it, there's a whole other set of skills of training the heart, which is about feeling, love, compassion, connection to other human beings, connection to all living creatures. In the Buddhist traditions, those are the called the Brahma-viharas. And they have different other names in different traditions as well. And then there's a third set of practices. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, 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 totally. That I think of as uh, insight or wisdom practices. That they're the things that free the heart and mind and bring freedom, awakening, liberation. Mm. And I think a lot of people at first conflate those and kind of bring them all into one, but they serve different purposes. Richie Davidson, who's a wonderful researcher, and so he says, uh, saying you meditate is like saying you play sports. Badminton and football, they're both sports, but they're like pretty different. (laughs) (laughs) You could say that. They have these different purposes. So there's some reflection. What am I wanting to accomplish so what is the right tool or skill to bring to the task rather than just I meditate? That's um, that's a really elegant way to, to put it, that there's really these three main camps that you've broken down of, of, of training the mind around stillness and concentration, another camp around tapping into your yourself and your self-love and your emotions, and then the last camp, another camp, maybe not the last one, right. but another one, being going toward awakening and enlightenment. That's interesting because I think we only see, at least I maybe in my novice level of meditation, have really only been exposed to having a still mind or the concentration camp and definitely the the thought of tapping into my emotions. And those are conflated, as you said. I, I don't think I thought, I don't think I've separated those or thought of them as separate. Um, but I haven't even until until you shared some of the resources you shared prior to the call thought about the the origins and awakening and I like how you've separated those and uh, that that's a really nice explanation. Right, thank you. And I spent decades focusing on the concentration part, but really going back to sitting by the fire, the kind of wow mm. comes from the awakening part. You know, I, I wish I could go. I mean, partly I got excited to do this with you guys as I wish I could go back to my former self and I wasted so much energy, you know, kind of sincere, heartfelt, diligent, but just putting my energy in the wrong direction. And so I think it's actually much, much easier than I made it. believe that all the teachers that I had were really sincere and everyone was doing their best and the ways that they thought best led to opening the heart and opening the mind. As all of this incredible wisdom is being transferred to the West and then mixing with Western science, how much of it was my own psychology. But I've come to see now 
that getting a certain specificity in how you do the practice really makes a difference. And so I both think that all of the apps out there are like, it's incredible how many people are being introduced to meditation, but there's a shadow side. You know, I did a retreat in the fall and with all these business leaders and so many of them said, you know, I used all these different apps and I meditate 10 or 15 minutes a day, but I sort of hit this level and then think like, well, is this all there is? Right. And so that's where they haven't gotten the skills and understanding and specificity and contextualizing to realize that there's so much more. For me, the experience so much more around the loving kindness practice, cultivating self-compassion, how much that helps with settling the mind. And it's interesting in the, in the Tibetan tradition, rather than concentration, they use the term calm staying practice. And so it's both, you want to cultivate the sense of calm in the field of your awareness. You want the mind to stay. And so there are actually two different overlapping qualities that you want to bring together. For years, I was just focusing on the staying, you know, kind of bringing and sort of trying to do it by brute force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like, I'm just going to be the last person in the meditation hall and the first person and sit the longest and... You know, I would do these, so I did 10 month long retreats. Like I never missed a sitting and I was sitting two and a half or three hours at a sitting. Wow. And, and my mind, like it would get really, really, really still. But there was also a way that it was exhausting. I connected the stillness to the efforting that I was making. Whereas now years later in three minutes, my mind is much stiller than it ever was in a month of effort. I, I mean, that that resonates. I feel like that's exactly the brute force element. Yeah. Definitely. I'm I'm borderline shaming myself when I like when my mind wanders and I'm like, damn it. There you go. Again. Thinking again, Reed. <laughs> always with the thinking. Yeah. My dad always tells I mean, this is a, a pretty common story, I think, in the meditation space. But the there's the guy, you know, the guy from Silicon Valley that goes to the monk and says, I want to master meditation. How long will it take? And the monk says, you know, 10 years. He goes, okay, what if I meditate super hard every day? I'm just going to sit and meditate as hard as I can. And the monk says, well, for you, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> An overarching theme that I'm developing throughout the interviews that we're having with different folks is I'm curious about what drives people toward meditation, what makes them curious about it, and what habits do those people have that's different from people who don't end up establishing meditation practices and uh, do you think because you mentioned you know you had this experience with what you thought was mushrooms and turned out to be lsd and you mentioned your friends they went back to normal life and you know they were touched in that moment but they it didn't stick with them and what do you think why did it stick with you you know it's a great question the most honest answer is i'm really not sure mm. and i think about it because i became obsessed and lived in this retreat center and got a master's degree, went back and forth. I got invited to go to India and get a PhD in Indian philosophy or come to California and become a psychologist. And I really went back and forth and then California won. As it usually does. It's hard to, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, that's yeah. a hard one. I had the good fortune. I started uh, teaching shortly after I got my PhD. And so back in like 1994, I was 
having my students do a 20 minute sitting practice as part of the academic class I was teaching, which at CIS you could do. And back then, everyone thought I was a total whack job. No one even had even heard of mindfulness or meditation or, and now 25 years later, the world is so different and there are so many people interested in meditation. And then I'm fascinated by people in my classes, like they get this taste and they're like, oh my God, it is so different when I feel my heart. Mm. And they do the practice and they come in each week and like, I feel so different. Life is so much better. And then something happens and life gets busy and some people stay with it and some people it falls off. So I've been thinking a lot, what are the different, how do you do in, in statistical, they call it factor analysis, mm. where you look at the different layers or elements. In my own case, just something was touched that it became an obsession. And then there's also something that for most people, the first three to six months of meditation is hard and, and not as rewarding. If people can stay with it five or six or seven days a week for three to six months, and they have a, a certain amount of coaching, a pretty significant, they turn a corner and they're like, oh my God, this is so worth it. But at first, the cost reward, it's a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, after that wow experience, I found that it was a Hindu ashram that ended up was like close to my dormitory, walking distance. And I was able to tune into something that it was satisfying enough to have me want to learn and keep going. It's an interesting, it's, a, it's something I want to continue to ask folks that we speak with what is it that not only drew you toward meditation but kept you there and i just think it's an interesting perspective that's the rub i think that's like right. there's three camps there's people who meditate they understand the value and they do the practice then there's people who understand the value but they don't meditate regularly they want to meditate they believe in the value but they don't do it and then there's a third camp that i think is becoming a minority which is they don't see the value nor do they meditate right. How do you jump camps? What, yeah. what, what are the factors that allowed people? Well, some of it, I see some people when they go on retreats or certain kinds of workshops. So the other thing, being a professor at CIS, I've come across a wide range from the fairly straightforward to the just way out there, different ways of transformation. One of the ones that I actually personally haven't done, but have sent many of my clients, um, is called the Hoffman Process. And it's this very intensive boot camp that's a, it's not happening with the pandemic, but it breaks people open. Like there's something about people being broken open that then they get the value in a fundamentally different way. I think some of it is also context and how busy. Mm -hmm. And some of it is people being sufficiently motivated. It's kind of getting the wires to connect. Mm -hmm. I sometimes think of it as you're putting in the energy now as a gift to your future self. Delayed gratification. Yeah. And that requires so much groundwork to 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 understand why that's beneficial requires so much groundwork yeah. to get to that point. So I actually feel like I was kind of lucky because I'm so close to my father who, when I started meditating, had clocked about a decade of meditation. 
And he really pushed me to it. And he said, Sean, I, I can't stress this enough. Like sit down and meditate for 10 minutes every day for a year and, and come back and tell me that your life isn't substantially different. And that's a, that's a big ask to do anything for a year. I was like, dad, come on. And I did it, but through his help, through his guidance. And like you said, the obsession bit, it really resonates because I always evaluate things in my life based on are they good for me and how much can I do them and a good example is exercise like exercise is good for you but if you do too much exercise your body starts falling apart and right. so I had ne- I had never found something that I felt like there wasn't this like dark side there wasn't something to be careful of and when I found meditation all of a sudden I realized well maybe there is maybe you can get stuck in there or something I don't know I haven't but <laughs> I just felt like there you could do it so much and it was only going to do good for you. This was something that, without a doubt, I felt like could help me. And I just became obsessed with it. And every day for a year, I did it until I can't, I can't break away from it. Like, it's going to be part of my life forever now. That's a, it, is, it is a great blessing. I mean, I, I, I sometimes think of this as my, you know, my own practice has been incredibly satisfying, fulfilling for all of the 40 years. But in the last seven to 10 years, it's just the, the change in the growth rate is exponential. Every day is just the most extraordinary blessing when I sit. I mean, it, and, and so I, I share this in my classes. I wish I was like Spock on, on Star Trek, <laughs> where like I'm like, if I could just do a mind meld hmm. and you could get like, this is what the promise is. Yes. You would be doing it every day. I mm. want that like, so bad. <laughs> I am convinced that if people really get the sense of happiness and ease and and just radiance through my classes and through my work as a, a therapist and training other therapists, just so many people with so much suffering. Yeah, so mm. much suffering. The mind and this sense that if I just get this promotion or get this thing to work out or get another date with this person. I'll just feel better. It'll just make me feel better. <laughs> not getting that if you just learn how to change the wiring inside, just what's there is extraordinary. Mm. Removing all that noise. So let's talk about those benefits because you hit something inside of me so deep. I, When I got a taste of what you're describing, I changed my whole life. Like my mission in life is literally to help as many people meditate as possible right now. I changed what I do for a career. Like we started a company based around it. Like that's what I want to do. And and you nailed it. It's like, I wish I could telepathically like shoot these waves at people. Cause I wake up every day and there's moments where I feel like I'm erupting in euphoria. Like it's this subtle glow from my chest and it's something that I want people to taste. And so I mean, what are the benefits that you felt? Well, you, I mean, you're naming, this is in the, in the uh, Tibetan tradition. It just, as our hearts open enough, or I'll speak about for me, I really notice that throughout, I've had teachers that would talk about cultivating compassion. And for many years for me, it was a fake it till you make it. Like I would feel it or not feel it or have a lot of judgments or, and actually as in practicing the loving kindness practice, over the last many years, something is really dramatically changing in me. Mm. And when I touch or rest in this place, the word that I use with myself a lot is radiance. Yep. Mm. That I can let go of the way the mind is conceptualizing. And there's just this raw aliveness 
that is is the whole field and this field it's always here there's it's unbelievable happiness and peace i used to kind of say i would touch it but now it's sort of like i swim in it <laughs> and i do my morning walking meditation and i'll just see someone come in the other direction and they're just on their yeah. phone or <laughs> do you know and they're and like my heart bursts of just like the net, it just comes the natural wish to want to share it with everybody. Right. There was something, Sean, as you were saying it, for me, one of the really big turning points is the loving kindness practice. Mm-hmm. I spent many years focusing on the concentration part. And I was also reading lots of books and I was also a therapist and studying all these different things. But really there's this very simple practice of sincerity and sincerely sending well-wishing to others yeah that as as i have practiced it just i feel my heart more and more and just this glow of happiness in my heart and connection to those around me and then all the annoying shit in my life (laughs) like it's all i have a very complicated life and it's all still there (laughs) but it it just smooths out the edges and it's all okay when my heart is open enough. That's beautiful, first of all. So I want to say that. It makes me think of the the Dan Brown video. And for people who are listening, Michael shared with us a lecture from this wonderful, I believe he's a professor at Harvard, Dan Brown. Mm-hmm. And in this video, Dan touches on a lot of concepts, but I wasn't even aware of this camp, this potential focus area within meditation of compassion and self-love. And I think that that's already one thing. And Dan touches on that. I think a lot of Westerners see meditation as a way to, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley Westerners even as a way to biohack as a, you know, and and I, and I think that's, was my, you know, perception of meditation up until you shared that video. And because I'll tell you the way that I've been using meditation, I'm working all day on my zoom calls as everybody is right and right. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And you know what? I need to take time to just still my mind and, and kind of take a step back. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I definitely have been using it as a tool to de-escalate, to, to pull anxiety out of my life and to bring stillness and more in that concentration camp. And and like as a tool to like, how can I be more effective in work? How can I like be a better problem solver? Yeah, which there's Which it does. There's a lot of research that as you train the attentional system. This is where I think the self-compassion work, get the critic out of the way and be motivated from values rather than the critic, productivity and effectiveness goes up dramatically. So related to what you were saying, you actually brought to mind part of becoming, I call myself a, a loving kindness junkie. <laughs> I think of it, you were, so, you know, like you, you cannot OD. Yeah. <laughs> you can just do more and more and more loving kindness. Um, and there's just absolutely no downside. It's infinite, yeah. I found out about there's a program at Stanford called the Compassion Cultivation Training. And I first looked into it. This is like how tricky the mind is. <laughs> thinking like, oh, my students will be really interested in this. And so I set up and talked to the director and we talked on the phone for about an hour. And I can still picture where I was. And then I thought, huh, sounds really cool. <laughs> so I went through the program myself, which was an enormous pain in the ass because I was working full-time teaching and then I'm 
taking this program and writing papers on the weekends. And like you said, complicated it, life still there. <laughs> <laughs> we got to meet with Thumpan Jimpa, who is the Dalai Lama's translator. Mm. And really, this guy just glows. You know, you're just like, you know, he's just in the room and you can just <laughs> feel. <laughs> Oh my God, he's, something's different. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's the real deal. One of the other students went up and asked him this question about compassion. Like there are all these people and they're using compassion, but it's not really towards liberation. They're just using it to feel better, hmm. right? Or for psychological healing or to help with anxiety. And, you know, he stopped and he really thought about it for a minute. And he said, um... I think the Buddha would say compassion is good, you know, and so any way it's used is a good way to use it, even when if it's in the service of these other things. Mm. And, and I go back and think about that because in my classes that I teach, right, so I teach, it wasn't eight week now that it's online, it's a 10 week class called Mindful Self-Compassion. And some people are there for psychological healing. Right. They want to be less reactive with their partner. They want to. I think it is one of the absolute best tools for in the psychological world, what's called affect regulation. Hmm. Right. And so we have more we can regulate our emotional life in a more skillful way. And they're not interested in liberation or awakening. I try to really listen to what they want and honor and really respect, appreciate that. I think one of the things Dan says that I find valuable is that mindfulness and these loving kindness practices, they really work. I mean, when I started out, I was teaching mindfulness and no one knew what the word was. And then over the years, any therapist will know this. You get these flyers, mindfulness and anxiety, mindfulness and depression, mindfulness and post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. mindfulness couples therapy, yeah. mindful parenting, because this skill of mindfulness helps in an extraordinary way with all of mm. that and not to confuse the buddha shared this technique because really the goal is that we can be free from all suffering that makes us a much better human being i sometimes think of a continuum of on the one end we're malnourished or deprived and on the other end we're satiated mm. <laughs> and so many people in our world just go around deprived and so wanting to consume and become selfish. And when I'm deprived, I become selfish. Mm, same. <laughs> right. And I can feel that as I feel nourished more, my heart feels more nourished, I become a better person. And, and you're, you're able to nourish others, maybe, that you have more capacity yes. to support others. You know, I have to thank you for, for expanding because I think I've had a very selfish kind of very I don't know, egocentric or just centered on me meditation practice of how can I be less anxious? How can I, and those are all good things. And how can I be better at work? How can I be more efficient? But it, it's like, how can I use this as a tool to expand and, and offer, what can I offer to other people? And I think that that's beautiful. So I really appreciate you opening my eyes to that. That's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, you're very welcome. And, and there's something you're saying if someone is anxious or depressed or sad or struggling with trauma, it's hard to be giving to other, like you need to heal right. all of that 
first. And then actually, as you're satiated enough, like there's just this, what else matters, but to try to be generous to others, right? Because stuff, I mean, I still really like stuff, <laughs> uh, but it matters less. Right. And the, and the, and the desire to be generous matters more. And I think that's just a natural, like as the heart, as you do these practices and the heart heals, so much of my own healing has come from teaching this class that was put together by uh, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. In the psychological world, there's a cynical part of me. I've seen so many people where they figure out something really amazing and then they try to copyright it and make a bunch of money off of it. Christopher and Kristen, in addition to being really brilliant, wise, thoughtful human beings, are so the opposite of that, that they're trying to kind of share it as freely, generously, widely as they can, you know, really what the Buddha taught. And I have found that for myself through teaching it, like each time I teach the class, I, I learn each of the skills a little more. Yeah, totally. And, pra- and so... I just feel as I become more self-compassionate, how much better my life is. And I used to have this fantasy like I'd get like a little more compassionate or and it would sort of level off. It just keeps going and going and going. Maybe there is some place where it levels off, but... Haven't found it yet. <laughs> and it seems, it doesn't seem that way. Like it just seems like the more I practice it, the deeper it gets and the more it reshapes my life. That was part one with Dr. Michael Klein. We are excited for part two. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Aware Apparel, bamboo clothing, and essential items to help you center yourself and meditate. We're approaching our upcoming new clothing release. Very excited about that, and we look forward to sharing that date with you very soon. But I can assure you the samples and items that I have seen are exciting. They really are. We should have a date for you guys soon for the next drop, so stay posted. Until then, part two drops next week with Michael Klein. See you back here.